Um, my name is Andy, and um, it's my great pleasure to read to us from God's Word this morning. Um, we're going to be reading from uh, 2 Peter, chapter 3, starting at verse 8, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. Um, it's, in, it's on page 1,227 uh, in the church Bibles, which should be in the seat in front of you. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and goodly lives as you, sorry, godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may, be carried, you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. Good morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we live in this interesting cultural moment where the Christian faith at times appears at odds with what's happening around us, we do pray you give us a confidence in your word that it actually is light and life for us and just help us to again as we come to it to believe it and to accept it and to do what it says in Jesus name amen well whatever you may think personally about this book that we call the Bible uh, one thing I think you can't say is that it's not relevant or important some uh, as we think about the question should we take the Bible literally we'll look at this book and they will think it's old-fashioned, uh, they'll think it's regressive, they'll think it's boring, tiresome, unreliable. And there'll be others, and when I say others, this has been said through all the centuries across all cultures, who say this is the most important book in the world. Uh, it's life-giving, it's heartwarming, it's soul-stirring, it speaks to me, God speaks to me through it. 
And so you've got this incredible dichotomy of people who will just, A, leave it on the shelf or not even engage with it, with others who will read it every day. And I want to give you just some interesting quotes uh, or statistics about the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but um, there's nearly or at least six billion that have been printed, given away, sold. Um, some think it may be as much as eight million, oh, sorry, eight billion, uh, but it is the greatest selling distributed book in all of history by, I think, a ratio of 10 to 1. Um, secondly, 100 million as of today are being printed annually. Now, that's a staggering amount of Bibles. Uh, what that means is, in the course of this service, us sitting here, 13,000 were printed and given away. It equates to three Bibles every second <laughs> are going off the printing presses into someone's hands. It's an astonishing figure. And the other thing is, it's going all around the world, 2,500 languages it's been translated into currently. And they are seeking to continue to translate it into more and more languages, dialects, so that everyone in the world can actually have access to this book that we call the Bible, the Word of God. Now, why is it the case? Well, I take it because as a Christian minister, it's a living book that we see God speaking through. But one of the things that, that is said about it today is, surely you can't take it literally. And it's a good question to ask, should we read this book literally? And when I listen to people who engage around this topic and are sceptics or doubters, um, there's three things that I often hear said. Uh, first is, in terms of the Bible, it's scientifically impossible. You think about what is written in here and when you think about what science says, actually there's this incredible mismatch. It's impossible that you can have good science and believe this book. Um, a second one is to do with history, that it's unreliable. Um, surely the things that have been put in here have been conflated, they've been exaggerated, uh, they've been included, they didn't really happen. And so there's this sense and suspicion that great stories, yeah, not great history. And then the third one, and this is a more recent one, and you can't help but think of the Manly Pride Jersey saga, that it's actually a culturally regressive book. And we're enlightened now, and we know better. Well, I'm going to try and answer three questions. Is it scientifically impossible? Is it culturally unreliable? And then in a shorter way, is it culturally regressive? We're going to address particular issues to do with that over the next two weeks. But let's think about science first. And it's worth saying, uh, I've got an engineering degree, it's my background, but I struggle with my science because I was not that engaged with it. Uh, in fact, I struggle with my engineering because I was not that engaged with that either, and I became a minister. <laughs> and I often say to people, the world is a safer place. Let's be honest, okay? So I'm not speaking as a scientist, but I have done some reading on this. And I want to say a couple of things. Um, the issue that sparks the claim is this. Typically, the question starts at the creation narrative. And when people open Genesis 1-1, as a scientist, they go, this is not possible. Seven days, 24 hours? No, impossible. And I want to say a couple of things on this. Uh, first of all, uh, the Bible is not a science manual. It's worth saying, it's an obvious thing to say, but it's a needed thing. It's predominantly a record, historically, of God's interactions with the world. In the beginning was God, He created us, 
And the story unfolds as to how he engages with us and what's the end story for God and his people. And as you read through this, the predominant genre is history and it's laced with prophecy in terms of God speaking to his people. Also what's called apocalyptic, that's the book of Revelation, a kind of more otherworldly genre. And also with the praises of his people, which is typically in prose or poetry. And you've got incredible songs there that are a part of our response. And so it's a very human book, even though we believe it's a divine book. And in particular, when you come to the beginning of the creation account, and you think about what's there, there's three chapters, the kind of high-level overview, chapter one, and then the kind of zoomed in on Adam and Eve. And it is worth noting, it is not a scientific account of how creation accounted, uh, began. It's telling us who made it and the purpose and meaning of that creation, that God is our creator. It's not a science description. The words and the literature, the genre, is incredibly poetic and prosaical in chapters 1 through to 3. And that's a clue to us. We've got talking snakes there. That it's not something that you'd read with, if I can say, a literalness. A literalness. And that's not to say it's not true. I absolutely believe it's true. And it's depicting that there's an order in this creation and a designer and a purpose in it. And I do believe Adam and Eve were real people who really rebelled. And that that's affected the rest of humanity. But I think it leaves open the question, the scientific question of how did the earth come into being with God creating it? It tells us that God made the world the purpose of creation, but not the science of creation. And when you realise that, it's quite possible to hold differing scientific views on the origins of the earth. And the old nutshell often is the whole question of evolution and let me just say that's a question for scientists to ask if I can put it that way there is an openness to the ways God has worked in this world and I want to contrast and give you kind of an insight into the way Christians who believe the gospel hold an orthodox view of scripture that it's the word of God have differed on this question of evolution and science and they're two people who've had a significant influence on my life and interestingly they have opposing views scientifically i'll put them up on the screen um, science and the bible as i'm saying are answering different questions and one is the reverend dr peter jensen now he was my principal of theological college he then became my archbishop uh, here in sydney the other is reverend dr rod irvine who was my boss for 15 years um, Peter has a doctorate in theology, Rod has a doctorate in physics, geophysics. He was converted doing his PhD. If you talk to Peter, I'll never forget Peter's lectures in first year, deeply conservative Christian man, absolutely committed to the authority of scripture, holds a theistic evolutionary view of creation. You know, I had some questions about that. Um, I know that there is micro evolution that seems obvious adaptation within species but do species make jumps 
important scientific question. I've got my significant doubts about that. He was happy to have a theistic evolutionary view that had a real place for Adam and Eve, but on top of an evolutionary process. But then when I talked to my bod, old boss Rod, who is a physicist, he goes, no, he's got it wrong, Bruce. <laughs> His view is seven days described are seven units of time and you see there from the two peter reading that a day with the lord is like a thousand years a thousand years is like a day he said my reading of science as a physicist it's a very old creation a very old earth into which late in the piece not by evolution adam and eve were created at ten thousand years ago two very thoughtful intelligent christians both orthodox, like absolutely orthodox. No one would say Peter Jensen is not orthodox. But differing on their science. And what I learned from this is, um, the Bible is not answering every question. And science has a real role to play to help us understand the how and the why of God's creation. Sorry, the how of God's creation. How has it actually... Um, things work and in reading this bible we need to realize that we literally believe it's true but yet there are genres that help you understand how to read the different parts of scripture and when it's history yes you read it as history that these are real events real people when it's instruction yes these are instructions that we literally take hold of but when it's prose it's operating in a different way the second thing to say about the science question doesn't make the Christian faith impossible is this um, modern science was developed by Christians let me unpack that when you look back at the history of science um, different cultures have always had scientists and if I can say the quest to learn scientifically uh, the Chinese uh, Middle East uh, it's always been a part and parcel of humanity to try and understand this world. But what we call the modern scientific method that is practiced today is actually an outworking um, from the Christian church. Did you know it was two Franciscan friars, as in monks, <laughs> who laid out what we call the empirical and methodological foundations known as the empirical method for scientific research? They were Roger Bacon, what a great name, and William Ockham. And those two Franciscan friars were theologians and scientists. And they gave birth to the empirical method of scientific discovery. And what they based their work on was the biblical truth that God has made this world with order. Going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. That there is an order and a design built into the created order. And because of that, in other words, they observe from scriptures that there is this orderly creation in which scientific research is actually possible. There's a designer who created the physical world that we call planet Earth, the cosmos that we observe and we find ourselves in. And so in the history of science, you may be surprised by this, but some of the greatest names are Christians. Did you know this? Uh, two of the great ones in kind of the scientific community historically. Um, Robert Boyle, if you've done any science, you'll know that there is a law named after Robert Boyle, Boyle's Law. Uh, Michael Faraday, they think, is one of the greatest ever scientists. 
Uh, he has no less than four or five principles or rules scientifically named after him through his work in the field of electromagnetism. There is the Faraday constant, the Faraday effect, the Faraday cage, the Faraday waves, all named after Michael Faraday. Um, Pam, you'll love this. He was a Scot. <laughs> Not just a Scot, he was an evangelical Christian who was an elder in the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, deeply committed to evangelism and deeply interested in the relationship between science and Christianity. One of the great ones. Did you know that the preeminent scientific body in the UK is the Royal Society, which is the National Academy for Sciences in the United Kingdom? It was established in the 17th century by Christian scientists such as Robert Doyle. And I was thinking about this in terms of the current world we live in, and there's numbers of people from around the world I could quote, but it was interesting, when I was down in Wollongong at the church I first began at, uh, Wollongong is a university town, uh, it has the greatest employment at Wollongong University, it surpassed the steelworks, and lo and behold, I had a boss who was an academic formerly, uh, we had all these academics who would come to Fig Tree Anglican Church, now we've actually got very few here, uh, they can't afford to live in Manly, we had the Dean of Science. Now, the Dean of Science is not just the professor of one school. He oversees the entire scientific community at Wollongong University, Robert Norris. Uh, we had the professor of physics, Peter Fisher. When Peter Fisher retired, his successor was Dr. Roger Lewis, who became Professor Roger Lewis. He was also at Fig Tree Anglican Church. Uh, we had the senior lecturer for physics, Carey Freeth. Uh, we had the associate professor for robotics, Dr. Phil McCaro, godfather to my son, Philip. Uh, and then within my own family, my daughter Sophie married Isaac Gresham, who is now Dr. Isaac Gresham, doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Sydney University, researching polymers. I literally have no idea what he's doing, but anyway, it sounds great. He's a Christian. And the thing is, science does not make what the Bible teaches impossible to believe. It's actually the opposite. Rather, what the Bible teaches, that there is order and design in this world, actually makes it possible to do science. That's the significant thing to note. It's only because you've got order that you can have repetition in scientific method and confidence that what happened yesterday will happen tomorrow. The Bible teaches there is order and it makes science possible. Let's move to the second thing, history. Oh, Wollongong Uni. Is the Bible historically inaccurate? Now, on any of these topics, I could talk for an hour <laughs> and I could talk for a long time on this. I'm going to try and keep myself uh, brief. But it's worth noting a couple of things. Firstly, the historicity of the scriptures always, is always under attack. Here's a recent one. There was a show on uh, Charlie Pickering's show, The Weekly Wednesday Nights on ABC. Uh, we love the ABC. I, I genuinely love it, but they often have people of uh, interesting um, form. And uh, they had this female professor, Francesca, Travis Coppolo, uh, forgive me for the pronunciation, she is a professor in theology and religion at uh, Exeter University. This is what she said about the historicity of the Bible. Jonah was not swallowed by fish, one. Two, there was never an exodus. Three, there's no evidence for Moses being a historical figure. I mean, that's a kind of cynical take, isn't it? And she's a professor of theology. You think, what are you studying? Anyway, that's another question. Um, how should we read the scriptures? Is this book historically accurate? It's a really important question because um, 
Unlike the, if I can say, the Genesis question where I'm saying there's an openness as to what you might go, there's not an openness about Jesus rising from the dead. That is the foundation of our faith. The stories in the Gospels, Jesus' miracles, they are the foundation of our faith in terms of helping us understand who Jesus is and why he came. Let me say a couple of things firstly. It's worth noting there's a small gap between the events of the New Testament and the writing of it. That's significant from a historical recording point of view. Uh, It's an unusually short gap between the two compared to other historical data from that period. What most scholars believe is that the Gospels were written within 60 to 70 years of the events of Jesus. Now, you might think that's a long time. The reason is it was actually countercultural. It was what's called an oral culture where you would speak the stories and recount them and learn them and memorize them. You wouldn't write them down. Because the way you kept control of it within the community was to memorize it and tell it. But to get the story to go beyond their cultural barriers, they wrote it down so it could be shipped out. What took place first was the letters that were written because of emergency contingencies that they had faced and needed to address. And they were written within the first 20, 30, 40 years after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Conservatives typically date Matthew, Mark and Luke Acts to the 60s, so within 30 years and John later in the 80s. What it means is they were written when there were other eyewitnesses alive who could have contradicted what was said if what they wrote was false. That's the key thing to note. And so let me move to that. It was written by eyewitnesses or friends of eyewitnesses. Go to your Bible. I'm going to quote a very famous excerpt on this. It's Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. It's the introduction to Luke's story of the gospel of Jesus. And he puts it this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. Now, there's lots of people have written about the story of Jesus, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So I've got the material from those who saw Jesus, his eyewitnesses. With this in mind, verse 3, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for all you, most orderly Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. In other words, What I'm writing to you is based on the eyewitness stories. And that's the testimony of the New Testament. It's written by those who either were the eyewitnesses or were friends of it, like Luke. And the thing about it is, from a history point of view, they write about real people and real events that you can actually verify. I'm going to just give you two examples. They're two ones that I love. Um, The first one is from the moments or the hours before Jesus' death. And it's recorded in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, and it says this, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, it's one of these little asides that you kind of just read over and not think too much. But I mean, just ask yourself the question, why is Mark mentioning not just Cyrus... But his boys get a run in the story. (laughs) Rufus and Alexander, I mean, why the heck are they in there? Do you know why? Because they're a footnote to verify that this really happened. That's how you verified truth in the ancient world. You gave them the names 
who could tell you the story. This happened. And I reckon, honestly, Simon would have been kind of a rock star of the early church. You're the guy that carried the cross? And if you don't believe him, go and talk to his sons, because I'm sure he went home and told them. Never imagine what happened to me last year week when I went up to Jerusalem <laughs> and the guy that died has come back to life <laughs> it's fascinating details so the whole way the written the gospels are written just reeks of authentic history but the other thing with um, the events in the New Testament is you can actually archaeologically work out whether they're true or not this is my favorite Acts 18 verse 12. Most people are not aware of this. Um, history buffs like myself are. Uh, my old boss Rod put me onto it. Um, when they date the New Testament history, do you know what is the most certain date that they date after and before from? It's this verse. This is the linchpin for dating all of the New Testament era. You probably didn't know that. Why is that? Let's have a read. While Gallio was proconsul of Archaea, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. And it's one of these details of people and places that don't seem that significant. It's hugely significant. Now, if you go back to the turn of the 20th century, 1904, at that point in history and the study of the history of the New Testament... They knew of Gallio, they knew of Archaea, but they had no evidence to connect the two. In fact, they knew that Gallio, who was a brother or cousin of Seneca, existed. He was a real person, written about in uh, Roman writings. Archaea is the region of where Corinth is. No connection. They thought, look, Luke's making this stuff up. Guess what they found in 1905? Let me read to you the story. In 1905, a doctoral student sifted through some inscriptions collected from Delphi. That's the region. He discovered nine fragments that formed a message from Emperor Claudius, well-known emperor of the Roman Empire at that time. In the text, Claudius writes, Gallio, my friend and my proconsul. The inscription was etched into a stone that was likely attached to the temple of Apollo. The text was dated April to July AD 52, which means Gallio probably occupied the chair of proconsul from July the 1st, AD 51 to July the 1st, AD 52. We know from the seasonal movements of Paul that they can now date this within months. It's one of the most significant archaeological finds of the New Testament era that literally they date after Paul's journeys and all the way back to Jesus' life from this inscription. It's that accurate. Now, I mention that as just one example of many that you will find that show you the veracity of the historical documents. You see, these are documents that they wrote with incredible care because they wanted to know, as Luke says, for us to know with certainty the events that took place. I could talk for hours on this, I'm going to stop there. Because the third issue uh, that is raised is that of, is the Bible culturally regressive? 
It's been a very sad week for Seagulls fans, me. Sad week for Christians, also me. When people critiqued the Bible 30 years ago, there was still a certain respect for it, that it was a significant document that shaped our history for good. That sentiment is slowly being eroded. And there is a sense of which this book just seems outdated, culturally regressive. And you just look at the furor that has taken place with the Manny Seagulls pride jersey, there has been some sense of acknowledgement that this was a legitimate thing for Christians to not do something against their conscience, but the more overwhelming torrent of emotion has been an outrage about them. And what is interesting is to contrast this with what happened last year with an AFL female player who was Muslim and who for similar reasons because of her faith and her culture decided to quietly sit out that round and there was no furor but there has been this time and there's been commentary around it. what sort of Christian faith is this? Now I'm not going to reflect in detail about that particular incident anymore I've written about it in my weekly email he was put in an impossible position I wouldn't have wanted to make the decision I can see reasons you would and I can see reasons you wouldn't and he was forced into it at one level without consultation but it raises the very important question and complex question is this Bible regressive now we're going to address that in detail over the next couple of weeks and uh Good luck in Jesus' name, Nath, anyway. <laughs> he uh, put his hand up and said, I'd like to have a go. And I said, look, I have spoken on this numbers of times, so I thought it'd be good to hear a different voice. And I'm sure Nath will do a great job on it. Um, I'm going to speak on the very vexed and, let me say, very important question about the whole issue of transgender identity in a midweek seminar. Uh, it's too difficult a topic to deal on Sunday and too short a time. And so if you'd like to come along, it's not this week, it's the following week, Tuesday or Wednesday nights as small groups can come and Thursday morning, so we're trying to make it accessible and uh, that will be an important time to come together and listen. But you see other examples that have been raised historically about the, cult, the Bible being culturally regressive. I mean, a classic one is that of slavery. Doesn't the Bible endorse it? And you pick up your Bibles and if you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, you'll read this, Slaves obey your masters. And people go, what? Slaves obey your masters? Paul seems to be condoning slavery here. How can you trust the Bible when it seems to condone it? Now, I can understand why people would recoil at that because it just seems a weird, wrong thing to say. But it's worth noting a couple of things. When we think of slavery, what we typically have in our mind and the images that are conjured up are of the 18th and 19th century slave trade and human trafficking and sexual slavery, which still continues on to this day. And so we often will have that in mind when we read the text of the New Testament, but they're actually two very different things, it's worth noting. The slavery of the first century was nothing like what we typically imagine slavery to be from the 16th, 17th and following centuries of which we've outlawed here with the Modern Slavery Act in New South Wales, rightly so. 
In the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was not a great deal of difference between slaves and the average free person. It's worth noting that. Slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech or clothing. They looked and lived like nearly everyone else. Um, they were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free labourers and therefore were not unusually poor. And also slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves out. And most importantly of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. They would often buy themselves out and win their freedom. And most could reasonably hope to be manumitted within 10 to 15 years by the late 30s, in their, uh, their 30s at the latest. And though there were cases of poor and abusive treatment, of which there were, typically there was no general sense of unrest among slaves in the first century. You could be a teacher and be indebted to a family, what they would call a slave, but they're actually a teacher. What's interesting to note from the Bible and the New Testament, Paul says of these types of slaves, if you can win your freedom, go and take it, like, <laughs> be free. And that's 1 Corinthians 7, he says, go for it, be free. In Philemon, he writes to someone who owned a slave who'd got converted, and he basically says, look, come on, you can't have him back as a slave. He's a Christian brother now. And so he is undoing what's taking place there. But importantly, what we understand as slavery in terms of the forced abduction of people and the selling of them, this is what he said about that. 1 Timothy is one place, Deuteronomy is another. He says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and sinful. And he lists a number of categories. And then he says, among who are slave traders. He's explicitly against that. It's very interesting. And whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Modern day slavery, as we know, it was banned in both the Old Testament and New Testament. And what it shows you is that you need to read this book carefully and thoughtfully. But on a deeper note, let me just say this about the whole question of, is the Bible culturally regressive? Why do we think that this culture that we live in today is some sort of cultural nirvana, that we're at this cultural moment of enlightenment? It's a really important question to ask. Why, why do we think that? Because that's how it's portrayed to us. And when I look at our culture, I see one, sadly, that is slowly disintegrating with just rising mental health issues. And it's a culture that doesn't have the answers. This is not our finest cultural moment in Australia. And secondly, it's worth saying, if there is a God, of which I believe, and he, has, and he has spoken to us, which I do believe is in the Scriptures. Would you expect this document to agree with everything you believe? Or do you think it's going to challenge you at points, if it's from God? Really important question. Because I'd put to you, if you want a Bible that just agrees with everything you believe in, You've got a God who's made in your image. Not a God who is over you, showing you how to live and how the world was designed 
and how it's meant to work. And that's what this book does. It actually culturally critiques us. You see, the Bible is not to be interpreted by culture. Rather, culture is to be interpreted by the Bible. And every culture will be at odds with this book in some ways. And it's worth saying, like, if you take today's culture around the world, Middle Eastern culture, there's some beautiful things about it that we don't have here in the West. And there's some beautiful things we have here in the West that don't have in in the Middle East. And the Bible will critique both of them in different ways. Because it's a book from God. Is it regressive? I don't think so. Rather, I think it shows us how we are to live in a way that honours him and helps people know the gospel. And that's why we need to read it, because this is God's word to us. And it should critique us, it should encourage us, it should build us and it should shape us. And may we all feed on it every day. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us to trust that this is a good word, a reliable word, and no doubt a difficult word at points, as the Apostle Peter says about the Apostle Paul. And so we need to read it carefully and thoughtfully and understanding the different genres and all that, but Lord, help us to receive it as your word. May you speak to us from it. And you instruct us and you critique us and you correct us and you build us. And may it be alive in our hearts and our minds and in our fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, mate. All right, folks, we've got a chance to encourage one another now by sharing um, favourite verses. Um, they don't have to be verses that you've read this past week. It might be verses that you learned as a kid. Um, it would be lovely to hear from a number of people a verse that has spoken into your life. And my suggestion is perhaps if you can read the verse out and then say one or two quick things about it, that would give us a lot of encouragement. And I think Nath is going to be walking around the, um, the back of the church with a microphone as well. So... Um, Put your hand up when you've got a verse to share. Can't see anyone yet, Nath. Uh, Kylie's right down here. And uh, in fact, Kylie, why don't I give you this and you can kick us off. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. But this is the real key one. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That last one, verse 18, really uh, resonated with me. God really brought it to my attention. The day after September 11, 2001, Rob and I were driving to the city and I was doing my Bible reading, you know, in a state of shock. And that really spoke to me in a way that I thought, we're seeing this horrendous event, but something eternal is going on underneath and God's got it all under control. Thanks so much, Kylie, for what is unseen is eternal. Got another hand up. Hello. Amanda, Um, thank you. I've always loved Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us... Who can be against us and I find that just so reassuring in in so many situations and have always turned to that and I 
I was given that in my autograph book when I left school by my scripture teacher. And so it's um, a very much loved verse for me. Over many years. Thanks so much, Amanda. Someone else? All right, I'm running down here. Ben. Um, I love this scripture from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yeah. Um, and continuing actually in uh, Matthew 6, 25. Now therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, uh, or what you will wear. Uh, and then in 27, uh, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Um, from Luke chapter 9. A very short sentence, but one that says so much. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay, and I think we've got one over here. <laughs> a couple. Um, yeah, so when things get a bit complicated or your mind just gets a bit confused, I like to go back to the simplicity of the common salvation gospel. So... I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. So I feel that it just takes the pressure off of um, me and my understanding and I can just trust in the Lord. And the other one is, um, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Thanks so much, Joanne. I think we had um, both of those verses in the earlier service as well, so they're well-known favourites. Maybe this will be the last one, I think. Yep. Oh, recently, with um, so many awful things going on in the world that, content, that, contend to, that can tend to um, crowd our mind, a scripture that I've been holding on to is Ephesians 4 and 8. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are honourable, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any... Um, sorry, I'm just quoting this from memory, I think this is it. If there be any uh, truth in these, think, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. And, yeah, I find that... Uh, I turn to that verse a lot... Um, every day in my mind and when I'm going to sleep. Thanks so much. It's a great verse, Philippians 4.8. Let me finish with a word of blessing. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.